Actually, I was reading in a book that Christmas was constructed to replace a pagan holiday that the church found threatening. Is that true? It's Discworld! It's Discworld! Podcast! Analysis! Yeah! So I'm Josh, and I will be your solo Unseen Academical today, back again for the second part on 1996's Hogfather, this time looking at its intersections with the Christmas tradition, both literary and historical. I'm going to be talking about the history of Hogswatch, the relationship between Father Christmas and Father Time, as well as the history and interactions of Christmas and fantasy literature, paying particular attention to the works of Charles Dickens, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis and the modern fantasy tradition that they have inspired, as well as films like A Miracle on 34th Street and A Nightmare Before Christmas. I am also trying out a new recording method uh, where I'm recording these sections in in different uh, chunks rather than trying to do it all at once and and exhausting myself because, uh, yes, talking to yourself, um, as well as being the name of the best new Carly Rae Jepsen song, uh, is quite exhausting when it's, yeah, just me talking to myself or talking into the void rather than having a, a back and fourth conversation so i'm going to try and break it up and and see if that works a bit better so there might be um some inconsistencies and things with the audio uh, but we'll see how we go um but before i get into everything about christmas and hogswatch and all of that i do want to take a second to talk about the other pivotal uh, mythological figure in hogfather uh, which is of course the tooth fairy So despite being pivotal to the plot, and I would argue perhaps even more so than uh, the Hogfather himself, who is more or less a MacGuffin or like a damsel in distress almost, uh, whereas the Tooth Fairy, the Tooth Fairies, uh, play a more active um, and instrumental role in the the actual plot of Hogfather. Uh, But despite this, Pratchett's Tooth Fairy characters and the concept of the Tooth Fairy itself seem to get largely overlooked, uh, both when examining Hogfather, but also just in general folklore and things. So I wanted to take a second here before we spend the rest of the episode uh, looking at um, Christmas and things to look at the figure of the Tooth Fairy and how it functions um, in Hogfather and the broader Discworld because the idea of the Tooth Fairy, while not as prominent as that of Hogswatch and the Hogfather, does appear uh, throughout some of the earlier Discworld books, uh, beginning in the second novel, The Light Fantastic, wherein Rincewind wonders why they would want to collect teeth and treats them as something to be generally avoided, imagining some strange entity living in a castle made of teeth. So we can certainly see the seeds of what would eventually become Hogfather being sown very early on in the Discworld uh, series itself. Uh, The Tooth Fairy is again mentioned in Mort by the job exchange attendant Leona Keeble, who suggests Death might want a new job as a Tooth Fairy, Water Sprite, or Sandman. They are then mentioned again in Lord and Ladies, wherein King Verence says he thought elves were just stories like the Tooth Fairy, uh, to which Granny Weatherwax replies, there's nothing funny about the Tooth Fairy, who who she considers a very hard-working woman, uh, which just towards some of the characters' interactions with labour that I'll get onto in a bit. Uh, Similarly, in soul music, Susan considers a prime example of woolly thinking to be that mentally unstable people told children about the Tooth Fairy, even though there was no reason for one to exist. Although in that story, of course, she also later meets one, who may well be Violet from um, Hogfather. I think you can do a bit of headcanon retconning there and make that work. Uh, But the Tooth Fairy Violet first definitively appears in Feet of Clay, the novel that comes before Hogfather, and which is published in the 70s. 
same year, uh, where she is pointed out among the patrons of the undead barbiers. And then finally, we have a male tooth fairy who also appears later in the fifth elephant. Uh, but whether it is or not, the tooth fairy Susan encounters in Soul Music tells her about there being multiple tooth fairies. Uh, they are sort of subcontracted. And this is where we get an extensive footnote about the Hogfather, uh, which I'll talk a bit about in the next section. Later in Soul Music, again, Ridkley mistakes Susan herself for a tooth fairy, which prompts Susan to contemplate how the only other people who collected any bits of bodies did so for very suspicious purposes, and usually to harm or control other people, concluding that the tooth fairies must have half the children in the world under their control. So again, we can see how Pratchett is essentially plotting out Hogfather while, while he is writing uh, some of the earlier Discworld novels, Soul Music in particular. But what's interesting here is that in all of these cases, the tooth fairy is an occupation, not an identity. And even though Banjo is possibly installed as a godlike tooth fairy at the end of Hogfather, it doesn't represent or function the fiction of Discworld itself in the same way that the Hogfather does, who is this like deep old god who is essential to human imagination and also arguably astrophysics. And this is perhaps because in the real world, in Realm World, there doesn't seem to be any coherent cultural tradition surrounding the tooth fairy. Indeed, while there's an entry for Santa Claus in Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, which Pratchett has said was his go-to resource for these sorts of things, um, there is no entry for the tooth fairy in any of the pre-1996 or even pre-2000 um, editions. Uh, by the 2005 edition, a reference has been added, although not in reference to a fable, but rather a phrase. Tooth fairy is listed under phrases about teeth, where it is described as a desired or imaginary source of riches giving the example, let's hope a tooth fairy can help with the funding, explaining that the illusion is to the fairy said to take children's milk teeth after they have fallen out and to leave a coin under their pillow as payment. So we do get an explanation, or not, not even an explanation, just a description. But again, it's in deference to its use as a, as a saying that I don't, at least in my experience, is not a particularly popular or prominent one. Uh, but even this reference is removed by the time of the 2016 edition, which is the most recent version I've been able to check. There of course, Santa Claus is still holding strong. I did have a look, and there's also not an entry for the Easter Bunny, and with the 2016 edition only giving a brief mention under Easter eggs, saying that in modern times, the Germans have favoured the rabbit as an Easter symbol, uh, which I was pretty shocked by, because I don't think that really uh, represents the significance or prominence of the Easter Bunny or the, the Tooth Fairy in modern culture. But I guess even Pratchett doesn't really engage with the Easter tradition or the, the figure of the Easter Bunny. Like, the Soul Cake Duck is very much are playing third fiddle to the Hogfather and the Tooth Fairy in the pantheon of godlike Discworld gift givers. I mean, maybe it's different in England and the UK, but the Tooth Fairy is a, a pretty prominent part of modern Western culture, I would have thought. And as Janet Gill and Theodora, Papa Theodoro, uh, point out in their 1999 article about perpetuating the Father Christmas story as a justifiable lie that I discussed uh, with Ndav at the end of the last episode, the Tooth Fairy is not comparable with Father Christmas in terms of imagery, representation, public acknowledgement nor complexity of story. Nevertheless, they say, the Tooth Fairy is perhaps the only non-religious imaginary figure that is presented to children as real in the British culture. But yeah, this is to say that while we can do all this unpacking and delving into the origins and evolution of Christmas tradition, uh, the Tooth Fairy seems to be a relatively new and surprisingly nebulous uh, cultural figure, which as with much of the modern Christmas tradition, seems to be largely derived from America, at least 
in its current form. Uh, so in his 1991 chapter, The Tooth Fairy, Perspectives on Money and Magic, Tad Talija investigates a number of possible origins for the American Tooth Fairy myth, which he dates to around 1900. The origins he investigates include one forwarded by uh, Jacqueline Simpson, of course the co-author of the Folklore of Discworld book with Pratchett, and she claims the Tooth Fairy possibly derives from an old British custom of leaving fairy coins in servants' girls' shoes while they slept. Talija points out, however, that the myth of the Tooth Fairy herself doesn't reach England until around the 1960s, uh, making the servant shoes tradition more of a parallel than a precursor uh, myth or custom there. Though, as Talija also notes, shed teeth are offered to animals in virtually every region of Europe, most often to crows and mice, and also cites an investigation of early 20th century Orientalist Max Müller, whose disciples gave teeth to animals while also throwing them into the sun as offerings to fire gods. So a bit of a coincidence there, but there is grounds for tying in tooth fairy traditions as well as Christmas ones uh, in with the idea that the sun won't come up. Uh, but despite all these different traditions, Taligia concludes that the best candidate for the original tooth fairy herself is French author Madame Dolnoy's late 18th century fairy tale La Bonne Petite Sorice, wherein a good queen, imprisoned by a bad king, befriends a mouse who turns out to be a fairy who goes on to knock out the king's teeth and hide them under his pillow to torment him. Talked a little bit about Dolnoy and her relationship to fairy tales, which is a, a term she invented in the Witches Abroad episode. Um, but as prominent Tooth Fairy scholar Rosemary Wells points out in her entry in Taylor and Francis's 2006 American Folklore Encyclopedia, there is no child and no lost tooth nor any replacement gift of money uh, to tie Dolnoy's story directly to the Tooth Fairy. As Wells further observes, however, the Tooth Fairy clearly has its origins in age-old rites of passage that mark children's transitions from infants to cognizant youngsters. So again, and, and I think this one is a little bit more um, deliberate, but still largely inferred in Hogfather, is that not just the, the belief and the story of the Tooth Fairy, but the actual act of losing your milk teeth to grow your adult ones in ties in with the ideas of, of, of childhood innocence and growing out of that into adulthood. Um, but yes, despite delving into some of these ancient traditions to try and find a point of origin for the modern Tooth Fairy myth, as Taligia observes, the Tooth Fairy only really becomes popular following World War II, uh, he argues, due to a mix of post-war affluence, the strengthening of the cult of the child, and most importantly, I think for our purposes, increased media depictions, such as those of Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz and the fairies in Disney films like Pinocchio and Cinderella, and particularly uh, Tinkerbell, who, as he points out, is a companion of the eternal child Peter Pan and his host of unaging lost boys. So again, we, we have a coincidental but implicit sort of tie-in to the maintaining of childhood and childhood innocence. And Wells also observes this increase in, in depictions of the Tooth Fairy following World War II, uh, citing numerous examples of children's literature produced between uh, the 1960s and the early 1990s, although I think hardly any would be read or remembered today uh, when the Tooth Fairy is more popularly depicted as dangerous or even malevolent in works by Thomas Harris, Graham Joyce, and indeed Pratchett himself, uh, or in films by the unlikely figures of The Rock and Larry the Cable Guy. But as I alluded to there, the Tooth Fairy does have a strange uh, legacy in modern horror. Uh, one of the examples I alluded to there was the 1996 novel The Tooth Fairy by Graham Joyce, which is published the same year as Hogfather, and one 
the British Fantasy Society's Horror Novel of the Year Award in 1997. Um, I did read this. It's not uh, relevant at all to Hogfather, other than the Tooth Fairy Illusion, but it, I did think it was very good and quite weird and strange and disturbing. So if you're into that sort of thing, I, I do recommend checking that book out. Um, more significantly, though less timely, is the fact that the Tooth Fairy is the name of the villainous serial killer who bites his victims' faces off with a set of dentures moulded from uh, his grandmother's deformed teeth in Thomas Harris's first Hannibal Lecter novel, Red Dragon, from 1981. And again, this is quite out of the realms um, of Discworld, although there is a possible reference in Hogfather to Red Dragon's more famous and influential sequel, The Silence of the Lambs, uh, published in 1988 and, of course, adapted into film uh, in 1991 uh, when it won Best Picture. Um, but in Hogfather, Violet tells the god of Hangovers about how she made a mistake with little William Reuben, whose entire mouth of teeth she pulled out with a pair of pliers are simply because he had slept with his head under the pillow, which is of course very amusing. Uh, but as the annotator Pratchett file points out, in The Silence of the Lambs, uh, Hannibal tells Detective Clarice Starling that the novel serial killer antagonist Buffalo Bill is a former patient of his named Bill Reuben. So you've jumped through a lot of hoops to get that to line up and connect. Maybe you've got to go William Reuben to Bill Reuben to Silence of the Lambs to Red Dragon to the Tooth Fairy. But I thought it was an interesting coincidence nonetheless, or it would be a bit of an elaborate and inconsequential one uh, for Pratchett to have actually put in there himself. The annotated Pratchett file also points out that Bill Reuben is the pigment uh, formed from broken down blood that makes poo brown. So again, I don't know how relevant that is, but uh, you know, a fun fact nonetheless. What I find most interesting about Pratchett's Tooth Fairies though, and especially Violet in the Hogfather, is that as I said, they're an occupation, not an identity, and, and it seems like they're the odd one out in that respect. But thinking particularly about Violet and Hogfather, her entire motivation is that she's underpaid working as a tooth fairy and needs to supplement her income so she turns to crime. And I didn't end up actually publishing the episode about uh, Marxism and soul music, but as we've talked about before, there does seem to be this thread of about labour and labour relations uh, running through the Death series as well as all the metaphysical themes. And in Nikki Ann Moody's chapter on death and work from the Guilty of Literature collection, he argues that death's taking over the role of the Hogfather is a reference perhaps to the increasing pressure on the employee to join the flexible labour force, which replaces stability with the cold comfort of continual retraining. And I think that is a bit of a stretch. I think, I think it's more applicable to the idea of Mort and, and his apprenticeship in that novel, uh, but I think the idea of death and the Hogfather is alluding to the two figures, intertwined heritage and the cultural zeitgeist, um, as I'll discuss in the latest sections, that it's not just death who swaps roles in Hogfather. We, we have like sort of a, a threefold role swapping. Of course, there is death playing the role of the Hogfather. Uh, but we also kind of have Susan playing the role of death again, not as directly as she was in soul music. Like she's not going around and reaping things, but she is stepping into that world and sort of filling that role or filling a role while death is then out occupying another. And of course, at the end of the book, we have uh, Banjo stepping into the role of the Tooth Fairy, uh, which Moody argues is a reinforcement of the conceit intrinsic to the Death series that work and identity are synonymous. Um, although he warns that it would be a mistake to assume that Pratchett links work and identity with happiness, claiming that the only recurring character who is ever really happy with his work is Cutmer and Throw Dibbler, uh, to which I say bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I would point out uh, as counterexamples, 
uh, Captain Carrot, who it's implied gives up his rightful claim to the throne because he's so happy uh, working as a policeman. Um, I would also point out that while Granny Weatherwax can be quite disgruntled at times, Nanny seems pretty happy in her role as the, the witch and midwife of Lankra. And I would also even say that Nari, and much more explicitly Lady Margalotta, as I'll discuss further in the uh, Vegetarian Vampire episodes, uh, but they are both extremely happy in their work, and it is indeed what gives their life meaning. Um, but I do think for Pratchett it's less that any work brings happiness, the idea is the right work brings people happiness. Uh, the idea seems to be a, a place for everyone and everyone in their right place. And this does seem to run somewhat counter to the materialism implied, if not by the Hogfather slash Father Christmas rituals, but that, that is irremovably uh, in the explicitly capitalistic tradition of the Tooth Fairy. And indeed, Talija cites a 1981 Boston Globe article by writer Mark Morrow, uh, who presents a survey by Wells into the phenomenon of Tooth Fairy inflation. And I, certainly in my time, have seen uh, the value of missing teeth go up from a $1 or $2 coin uh, when I was a child to full five, and I think once maybe even a $10 note for my uh, younger siblings. So, as well as a bit of fun, as Murrow observes in his article, the Tooth Fairy's rituals are also model economic behaviours that reflect uh, what he identifies as a reassuring image of good capitalist values. Uh, Wells resists this interpretation, maintaining uh, that the Tooth Fairy is a lot more than just a matter of money, arguing that it also provides a wonderful bond between parent and child, a signpost along the road to growing up, and a light in a cold world filled with horrible things, uh, which perhaps plays into some of the ideas uh, in Hogfather. Talija, however, is more cynical, noting that unlike Santa Claus, who at least still brings presents, the Tooth Fairy translates everything into cash, arguing that although the message of Santa Claus may be seen as a relatively humanized one about rewarding good behavior, the Tooth Fairy's message is more direct, telling children that anything, even their own bodies, can be turned into gold. And I would also add in, uh, without labor, that this is not selling your body's work, but literally selling your body, which yes, I admit is an extremely cynical way of looking at things. It is just sort of a bit of fun and you get a bit of money as a kid and all that. But given that there doesn't seem to be this long-standing folkloric history to the Tooth Fairy, that it does come out of the post-World War II economic boom in America, uh, perhaps mine and Talisha's reading is not too far off the mark. Um, so I'll leave it there for the Tooth Fairy, and let's get into something uh, far more ancient and complex, and hopefully a bit more optimistic, looking at the interactions of the Hogfather and the Christmas tradition. So before I get into the history of Christmas and Christmas literature, I want to begin by looking at the history of Hogswatch itself. Yes, Hogswatch is mentioned in 34 out of the 41 Discworld novels, so that is around 83% of the Discworld books featuring Hogswatch in some form or another. Uh, beginning with the second novel, The Light Fantastic, wherein all the spells of the Octavo must be said together on Hogswatch night, otherwise the world will end. Hogswatch itself, however, is seated even earlier in Pratchett's writing, long before even Discworld itself began, uh, being mentioned multiple times throughout Pratchett's second novel, The Dark Side of the Sun, from 1976, so that is seven years before The Colour of Magic, and it is mentioned in that book alongside and sometimes even in the same sentences as other familiar Discworld terms, such as 
as Widdershins, Small Gods, and even Clatch. So I am actually going to be looking at the Dark Side of the Sun after the Death series. I'm going to be doing sort of a miscellaneous um, series in between, which will include all the, the Discworld books that aren't part of the larger series, um, but also Pratchett's early non-Discworld books as a lead-in to the Wizard series, so we can see where some of these ideas came from and how they were formed. Uh, so more on that when I when I get to that. But when pointing out the appearance of Hogswatch in The Dark Side of the Sun in his Life with Footnotes biography, uh, Pratchett's assistant Rob Wilkins explains that Terry liked to say that he belonged to the recyclable school of literature, that nothing that could be used went to waste, and if something you had used looked as though it still had some life in it, there was no reason why you wouldn't use it again rather than bin it. Indeed, you were practically morally bound to do so. And yeah, something I found particularly striking about going back and rereading through all of the early Discworld novels in preparation for this podcast was how many seemingly throwaway ideas there are in the early books that are then later recycled as entire premises of later ones, including the passage I mentioned earlier about Rincewind imagining the Tooth Fairy as a strange entity living in a castle made of teeth. So although we do end up in Hogfather in the, the Hogfather's castle made of bones, you can certainly see the kernels of the idea that would later become Hogfather there, I think. So although Hogswatch the Holiday appears earlier, the Hogfather himself is first mentioned in Reaper Man by the Bursar, who recalls how he and his sister used to leave a glass of wine and cake out every Hogswatch night for the Hogfather, reflecting that things had been different then. He'd been a lot younger and hadn't known much and had probably been a lot happier, which again gestures towards the uh, themes of Hogfather, the, the novel. Um, the Hogfather is then mentioned again in Soul Music when Susan tells, quote, the Raven that she'd met a tooth fairy who she thought was just a story like the Sandman or the Hogfather. And then there is a, a footnote attached to that quote. It's quite a, a lengthy footnote, which says, According to rural legend, at least in those areas where pigs are a vital part of the household economy, the Hogfather is a winter myth figure who, on a hog's watch night, gallops from house to house on a crude sledge drawn by four tusked wild boars to deliver presents of sausages, black puddings, pork scratchings, and ham to all children who have been good. He says ho 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 a lot. Children who have been bad get a bag full of bloody bones. It's these little details which tell you it's a tale for the little folk. There's a song about him. It begins, You'd Better Watch Out. The Hogfather is said to have originated in the legend of a local king, one who, one winter's night, happened to be passing, or so he said, the home of three young women and heard them sobbing because they had no food to celebrate the midwinter feast. He took pity on them and threw a packet of sausages through the window. Now, as Leo Braybart points out in the annotated Pratchett file, uh, this recalls the legend of the original Asiatic St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Mara, um, in what is now Turkey, who is said to have thrown a bag of gold on three separate occasions through a window belonging to a poor man with three daughters so that the girls would have dowries, saving them from having to enter lives of prostitution. So it's just a, a bit of a direct parody there, swapping the, the gift of money for the gift of meat. But given the detail of that footnote, that does sort of show that Pratchett is like ruminating on this idea. He's building on it and sort of suggests to me that yes, he's like fully planning Hogfather or looking ahead to it as he's writing soul music. And I have to admit that until researching for this episode, I, I didn't really get the joke about Hog's Watch. Like I understood that the Hogfather was a pig and he was giving meat instead of presents um, but I didn't really see the, the logic there, what the joke was in reference to or meant to be sending up. But as Pratchett and Jacqueline Simpson explain in the Folklore of Discworld, in Scotland and Northern England, there is a rather similar sounding name uh, for New Year's Eve, which is Hogmany. 
a word which has become known since the 16th century, but which nobody has managed to explain. I think, in fact, the Oxford English Dictionary dates it to the early 15th century um, and suggests it is a borrowing from the French Hogemenlo, uh, which, again, was just another name for, for New Year's. Um, I didn't go too much into that etymology, but yes, that's where we're getting the um, idea for the parody from, I guess. But as Pratchett and Simpson go on, British Methodists call Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve the Watch Nights, and there are parts of Europe, notably in Romania, Serbia, Sweden, and Norway, where roast pig or a pig's head is the thing to eat at Christmas. Since traditionally it is the season for a mass slaughter of livestock, since it is difficult to keep the animals alive during winter. And all of that seems, you know, pretty clear uh, once it's laid out. But yeah, I guess this is a, a very European and also very, very English version of Christmas that Pratchett is playing off here. And as I'm doing this, I'm realizing often like just how specifically British a lot of Pratchett's references are. But yes, there's a very different experience for me as an Australian. We're coming up on Christmas in a couple of weeks as I'm recording this, and it has been in the middle of floods and it's been raining all day. But um, as for us, Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere, Christmas is in the middle of summer, right around when it's like as hot as it gets. So, you know, and there's, there's children's books of Santa wearing shorts and having a sleigh with kangaroos and things like that. But in general, we do tend to borrow the traditional, or I guess we'll, we'll get into this, but the modern Americanized version of, of Santa and Father Christmas. I do realize that there are differences in, in traditional implications, at least, between Santa Claus and, and Father Christmas, because I think today Today, the two figures are sort of combined into one, so I will be using them uh, interchangeably. It seems I default to, to Santa Claus, but I'm sure someone like Pratchett would point out that there are different implications to the use of, of the names there. But yeah, we, we have Santa Claus, Father Christmas, um, and we also just wholeheartedly borrow like the entirety of the, the British and the American Christmas imagery. The winter snow and the Christmas tree and all of that. We, we have all of that except it's in the middle of summer and everyone's wearing shorts. But also, you know, as I discussed in the, the previous episode with Nadav, like, I am not from a religious family. And although, like, Christianity on, on paper um, has a big presence in Australia and is, is maybe strengthening, like our most recent uh, Prime Minister, or, or a couple of them now, I think, uh, you know, pretty outspoken um, Christians, and you know, all, the, all the private schools and things have religious names, they're religious schools. But in, in general, and again, it may just be me and my exposure, I realize I'm talking anecdotally from my own experience, but in, in Australia, the religiousness doesn't really enter your day-to-day -day life unless you, you know, go looking for it. <laughs> like how our previous Prime Minister that I was just talking about, Scott Morrison, is currently or was recently sort of under investigation <laughs> of an ethical investigation because he said he was going to pray for Australia or something like that. And then there was news and articles and opinion pieces for weeks about whether that's an appropriate thing for a prime minister to be saying and, and whether he had breached any you know, sort of ethical um, obligations by appealing to <laughs> religion in, in his official duties. And as so you know, very different from, I guess, at least America where the complete opposite would happen, right? The presidents would get in trouble if they did not pray for him for the country. Uh, yes, but when, when I was, I guess, still <laughs> part of my family, you know, I came from from a family of vegetarians. I, I was, in fact, the, the last to um, convert and only did so long after I had uh, ceased communication uh, with them for the most part. But um, the family of vegetarians in the middle of summer, so pig's heads were not something I associated with, with Christmas. If we had a tradition at all, it was to sit out on the veranda in the sun and eat tacos. So the hog's watch tradition didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me as a reader until I, uh, yeah, looked, looked into it a bit further. But it is written there in the text. 
Um, as Albert explains when Death is talking about the real meaning of Hogswatch, he says, what, you mean that the pigs and cattle have all been slaughtered and with any luck everyone's got enough food for the winter? Or that they've chased down some poor beast and shot arrows up into the apple trees? And as Pratchett and Simpson comment again in the Folklore of Discworld book, it's amazing how much all of this used to happen in the days when no one had invented health and safety regulations or the prevention of cruelty to animals. And obviously as a, a vegetarian and a vegetarian scholar, um, I find this particularly interesting, but I also find the focus on meat in Hogswatch curious for a couple of reasons. First is that Hogfather the book comes right after Feet of Clay. In fact, they are first published in the same year, both in 1996, and Feet of Clay, as, as we'll discuss when I finally get to it, but is the most vegetarian of Discworld novels, if I want to uh, make that distinction. Discuss this a little bit with Sophie in the forthcoming episode on, on vegetarian vampires in Discworld, because we talk about Dragon, King of arms, being a vampire, and then the ethics of feeding on people and things, but also, yes, the, the golem in that book. Dorfel works at a slaughterhouse, and then his first act when he is freed is to return to the slaughterhouse and try and similarly free all the animals. So a more in-depth examination of that when we get to the book. But yes, it's interesting that that comes at the same time and is presumably written, in, you know, perhaps even in parallel uh, with Hogfather, which is so centered around meat and, and meat eating. And again, if I want to take a second to actually put on my uh, vegetarian scholar hat and say that along with just the traditional imagery of the Christmas dinner with the hog's head and all of that, there is a thematic connection in that, as, as I discussed in the previous episode with Nadav, if belief in Christmas is meant to be the you know sort of starting point of creativity and imaginative thought, that is also by transitivity to suggest that meat eating as, as both a cultural practice but also a, a historical event can also be associated with the advent of abstract intelligence and creativity and things. And this isn't just uh, association I'm doing here. Right? The the French deconstructionist philosopher Jacques Derrida, um, who I don't particularly care for or, or agree with many of the things he says, but he does, um, or his theories do dominate uh, modern critical animal studies, and, and a lot of it is, is founded on his thought. And, and his the main thrust of his work on uh, animal studies is that he identified this schema, which he calls carno-philogocentrism, um, by which he's saying, identifying a, a thread in, in Western society whereby the subjects, the types of people who are most privileged and have the most power are males who can read and have language, which, which is something Lacan said before in, in identifying phallocentrism and phallogocentrism. But then Derrida comes along and adds Carno to that and says that another axis on which uh, people, often literate men, are privileged is by way of being meat eaters and that society, Western society, generally looks down upon vegetarians, but also in that this is what supposedly separates humans from other animals and, and privileges them ethically in that the, the logo part, that we have language, we have imagination, right? We are the rising ape, as Pratchett would say, that then entitles humans that because we can think and apply abstract thought that somehow that then justifies our right to eat other species and that these ideas are tied up in Western society. Going back to you know classic myths like Prometheus, who steals fire from the gods, um, which is interpreted as this symbol of creativity and, and human intelligence, but also is the, the tool that is used to cook animal meat, which as Percy Shelley points out, right, humans can't eat raw meat, so without fire, we, we can't be carnivores or carnivores. And, and also Genesis, where Adam and Eve are charged with protecting the other animals in the Garden of Eden until they 
state of the apple of knowledge. And that is this, this moment of enlightenment, satanic enlightenment perhaps, but um, that's meant to, you know, again, symbolize the advent of intelligence and free thinking and, and things like that. Um, and, and also sin, again, I'm, I'm applying a post-Miltonist reading of that. I'm sure Nadav would have different interpretations. But it also says very specifically in those Bible passages that um, after that, as well as re- they recognize each other's nudity and then they clothe themselves in the skins of the animals. So we have the you know, slaughtering of other animals comes along with the, the advent of human intelligence in, in both myths. Now, more about this if you if you buy my book, but I will be coming back to this at the end, because I do think there is uh, something there, whether intentional or, or just implied. And of course, in Hogfather, we have the, I was going to say association, but the, the literal essence of, of human imagination tied up with the preservation of a, a hunting god who appears as a, a slaughtered pig and represents animal slaughter and gifts slaughtered animals as, as meat. So, yes, I think I think all of that is is not intended by Pratchett as a commentary on, on meat eating and its associations with, with human intelligence, and, and it's probably something you know he is picking up from society um more than something he is projecting on it but just because something is incidental doesn't mean it is not there and the fact that by you know attempting to reflect and engage with these ideas from the history of thought about human imagination and human culture and things that this theme of of meat and animal slaughter is coming through so strongly only supports the idea that it is so ingrained uh within the culture he is attempting to reflect uh in soul music the hogfather is mentioned uh four more times often in relation to Susan's disbelief, including a passage where she explains to Buddy that some things are represented by people, like the Hogfather representing the spirit of the Midwinter Festival. So again, we see Pratchett sort of sketching out uh, these ideas for the, the next book in the Death series. And jumping past Hogfather itself for a second, um, the Hogfather is again mentioned in Thief of Time. However, the only time he is mentioned outside of the Death series is in Thud, wherein the Low King of the Dwarves is said to be brandishing a Hogfather beard. So, although Hogswatch, the holiday, um, is almost omnipresent throughout Pratchett's writing, the Hogfather himself is intimately connected with death. So before I go delving back into the history of Christmas literature, I want to look at a couple of more recent uh, cinematic precursors to Project's Hogfather, which I think certainly informed the story, uh, in one case at least, uh, that being the 1947 film A Miracle on 34th Street, uh, which is about the real St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, coming to New York and working as a department store Santa Claus, um, and then getting tied up in a legal battle uh, to prove his existence. And this fantastical Santa is contrasted with the skeptical Doris Walker, who doesn't believe in Christmas or Jack and the Beanstalk, which Susan is reading a version of at the start of Hogfather, as well as Doris's young daughter, who is named Susan, and uh, who learns to believe through her interactions with St. Nick. Now, the film also received a popular remake in 1994, which already suggests some kind of direct inspiration or reference point uh, for Hogfather. But we needn't speculate, uh, because the scene in Hogfather where all the children go and, and um, meet Death dressed as, as the Hogfather and, and asking for a presence is a direct parody of the department store scenes in Miracle on 34th Street. Um, and I found it interesting that in the Life with Footnotes biography uh, tells a story about a five-year-old Pratt being similarly taken to see uh, Father Christmas at a department store in London and how he hadn't actually had the courage to meet the great man's gaze because, as Terry related it, you cannot look on the face of a god. I don't know whether he's uh, playing that up there or not, as, as Wilkins does cast a lot of um, aspersions on the sincerity of, of Pratchett's storytelling versus his performance. 
Um, but there are a number of other interesting crossovers between Miracle on 34th Street and Hogfather outside of just that directly parodied scene. In Miracle on 34th Street, Doris says she doesn't like Christmas and fantasy because if kids are filled full of fairy tales, then they grow up considering life a fantasy instead of a reality and keep waiting for Prince Charming to come along, which is exactly what Granny Weatherwax says in Witches Abroad. So I think we can maybe see Doris Walker in Miracle on 34th Street as a far more direct inspiration for Susan than Doctor Who's granddaughter or Mary Poppins or whoever. But yeah, also Granny Weatherwax, except in Witches Abroad, where the position Pratchett in the book are very explicitly taking is that they are pro this kind of skepticism, uh, whereas Hogfather and Susan's arc in general is about her being educated out of this skeptical way of looking at the word and learning to embrace more fantastic possibilities. And, and something I always thought about that I, I thought would make for a an interesting premise, if not for an actual Discworld book, but for my own piece of like Discworld fan fiction or something, which which I've never written, and I'm sure it's probably out there. Um, but you know, I thought I thought there would be something in in a story that sort of pits Susan and Granny Weatherwax against each other, and, and of course they would have to realize that they're it's all, it's all a big mistake, or they're being played against each other, and have to team up together at the end. But there, there is something there in that those two figures being sort of Pratchett's iconic, defiant female characters that seem on the surface to have the same traits and the same way of looking at the world, the same attitude and things, but actually ends up at opposite ends of, of the spectrum and opposing ends. So I don't know, I just, I just thought that was um, interesting and that it is spelt out that blatantly in Miracle on 34th Street and perhaps suggests that film as, as an inspiration on Pratchett's earlier writing, not just Hogfather itself. Um, I also found it interesting that St. Nicholas in Miracle on 34th Street teaches Susan Walker about fantasy by getting her to pretend she's a monkey. So we sort of have this incidental allusion to uh, the rising ape line, although Susan's response in the film that she doesn't know how to be a monkey sort of flips things around so that in that film we have Santa Claus, a representative of the eternal imagination, sort of is teaching people how to be temporal apes, uh, whereas in Hogfather, we have fantasy stories telling us about Christmas, so teaching us not to be apes and and to embrace the eternal aspects of existence. So a, a bit of an inversion there. I mean, I'm, I'm reading very intensely into that, but fun to think about, maybe. I also found it interesting that in Miracle on 34th Street, Susan's Christmas wish, which ends up coming true at the end of the film, is that she wishes for a house with a backyard with a great big tree to put a swing on, which is exactly what Susan doesn't want in Hogfather father and soul music right she begins the story with the thing that susan walker wants and she just wants to get rid of it um she's constantly pushing her family away rather than trying to bring them together the way susan walker is in in the film so a number of of interesting inversions and bits and pieces there that the pratchett is pretty clearly picking up and playing with more subtle i guess and and, and i think certainly more coincidental but also really obvious when uh you pointed out is the 1993 disney animated film the Nightmare Before Christmas, wherein the King of Halloween, Jack Skellington, kidnaps uh, Santa Claus in an attempt to replace him, and this film has become a big cult film, uh, primarily through the image of a skeleton in a Santa costume. I, mean, I don't know how pervasive uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas imagery was in 1996, but that's still three years after this film. You know, I, I think I see almost as much Jack Skellington imagery as I do regular Santa Claus imagery, especially given that uh, Jack Skellington imagery is on display throughout the whole year, um, rather than than just the end of it. So it's almost like, yeah, the image of death dressed up as as the Hogfather, rather than being an inversion or, or a subversion of the culture, is almost a reflection of culture, if not at that time, then, then certainly now. Um, 
Uh, but the film also includes a montage of Jack scientifically dissecting Christmas ornaments in an attempt to locate the spirit of Christmas within, which, you know, I, I don't think Pratchett's taking that from this film. I think these are both references to Francis Church's um, Is There a Santa Claus editorial that I talked about in the last episode. But nevertheless, it anticipates Death's proclamations about taking the universe and grinding it down to the finest powder to try and find an adder of justice in, in Hogfather. Also, and I think, again, extremely coincidentally, but interestingly, nonetheless, is that the name on his list that Santa Claus is checking off when Jack kidnaps him in The Nightmare Before Christmas is Susie. So I don't think we, we can draw anything from this. There's no conclusions to be made from that, but it's it's an interesting coincidence and a, another fantasy, Susan, to add to the pile at least. But putting both these films together, um, especially if we, we take the 1994 miracle on, on 34th Street uh, rather than the, the 47th one, sort of the entire premise and presentation of Hogfather seems remarkably less original than it's often given credit for. Like, all the, the thematic stuff is sort of laid out in Miracle on 34th Street and then the aesthetic stuff, even if in, in that film, the, the skeleton you know, he, he is kidnapping um, Santa Claus, although he does end up having to save him from the Oogie Boogie Man at the end. You know, he is sort of opposed to Christmas, whereas in Hogfather, death is always on the, on the side of the Hogfather from the beginning. But all the, the imagery um, is already there. Like, if you take the story of Miracle on 34th Street and and recast it with the characters from uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, you're not too far off Hogfather, which, you know, I think at least is often credited as one of the most daring and, and profound Discworld novels. But indeed, neither it nor uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas are the first time Father Christmas has been kidnapped or killed. There are, in fact, a, a number of historical examples, um, including an anonymous 1645 pamphlet titled... <gasps> The arraignment, conviction, and imprisonment of Christmas on St. Thomas Day's last, and how he broke out of prison in the holidays and got away, only left his hoary hair and great beard sticking between two iron bars of a window, with a hue and cry after Christmas and a letter from Mr. Woodcock, a fellow in Oxford, to a malignant lady in London, and diverse passages between the lady and the crier about old Christmas, and what shift he was fain to make to save his life, and great stir to fetch him back again, with diverse other witty passages. Which about sums it all up, really. I mean, actually, there, there isn't much more to this story than that. Um, although I did find interesting the uh, description in this pamphlet of Father Christmas after he is captured. Um, it says, He looked under the consecrated lawn sleeves, as big as bull beef, just like Bacchus upon a ton of wine, when the grapes hang shaking about his ears. But since the Catholic liquor is taken from him, he is much wasted, so that he hath looked very thin and ill of late. But the wanton women that are so mad after him do not know he is metamorphized, so that he is not now himself, but rather like a jack-o'-lantern. Which is to say a jack-o'-lantern. So, we have an image of an emaciated Father Christmas with the head like a jack-o'-lantern or, or a skeleton, right? He, he looks like Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King. Um, so I, I do wonder if this was perhaps a, an influence upon uh, Nightmare Before Christmas at all. Uh, but also in this pamphlet, we have another allusion to the significance of meat, with Father Christmas being described uh, at the height of his powers as being surrounded in every house by roast beef and mutton, pies and plum porridge, and all manner of delicates. Although scholars are also warned that these are superstitious meats, and that their stomachs must must instead be fed with wholesome doctrine upon finding their dining hall empty, uh, which is something I don't think the Wizards of Unseen University would be having with. Uh, but also
also perhaps gestures towards some skepticism, right? It's sort of saying not to eat or advising scholars not to eat of the superstitious meats and instead dine upon, upon wholesome doctrine, which if you, if you want to emphasize scholars in that, then that would gesture towards skepticism over superstition. But I think given the, the context and everything there and, and the emphasis on doctrine, that this is saying not to go looking into the history of the superstition, but instead to dine upon the, the wholesome doctrine to maintain the, the Christian interpretation and, and celebration there. Perhaps I'm off the mark there, but that is what it suggests to me reading it now in light of Hogfather and, and everything else. Now, I'm not sure whether Pratchett would have been aware of this pamphlet or not, uh, but it is possible he was aware of another real-world description of Father Christmas's execution from a 1952 article called Father Christmas Executed by the extremely influential French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, uh, which was first translated into English in a 1993 collection called Unwrapping Christmas. So again, sort of lining up with Nightmare Before Christmas, the Miracle on 34th Street remake, um, and, and would have been readily available were Pratchett to go doing some research for this sort of thing. Uh, but in this article, Levi-Strauss presents a 1951 newspaper report about an effigy of Father Christmas being burnt by the French clergy in front of several hundred Sunday school children on Christmas Eve, while denouncing Father Christmas as a usurper and a heretic for paganizing the Christian celebration of Christmas. Right there, indicting him as a, a false god that is being worshipped. And Levi-Strauss comments that the incident begged the question not of why children like Father Christmas, but rather why adults invented him in the first place. He again observes the paradox of the rationalist defending Father Christmas as a symbol of irreligion, rather than in, in opposition to orthodox belief, again half a century before uh, Zizek's article that unlocks Hogfather for Andrew Raymond. Uh, but in this article, Levi-Strauss goes on to speculate about the spread of Christmas traditions based on the theory of stimulus diffusion uh, posited by the American anthropologist Alfred Kroeber, who, if you are not aware, is the father of Earthsea author Ursula K. Le Guin. That's what the uh, K stands for, is Kroeber, uh, which was with her maiden name. But this is the theory that modern cultural practices, in this case Christmas, are the results of different cultural beliefs and practices coalescing uh, rather than the preservation and communication of a, a single tradition that is carried down, which is to say that, yeah, most modern traditions, but I think especially Christmas, are pastiches, right? They are these collages of all these bits and pieces of different traditions and different rituals and celebrations and things like that that have now become sort of cemented as their own things as to sort of overwrite or obscure that history. And I think it's kind of interesting that Pratchett is in Hogfather sort of asking us to unpack that, to disentangle and, and recover those lost traditions in a work of, you know, postmodern fantasy fiction that is itself a parody in terms of a parody of Christmas and a parody of Miracle on 34th Street, but also as we're seeing, delving into some of these possible influences and the literary ones I am going to talk about in a bit, um, is itself a pastiche of this long-standing fantasy Christmas tradition. Um, Levi Strauss also makes what I think is a fairly wild argument that by untangling this and, and reaching back into older church um, traditions that Christmas therefore actually represents a deeper dispute between the living and the dead, and that the celebration of children's vitality at Christmas is somehow a symbolic transformation of them into living revenants, which I, I don't follow this argument at all. And I read through it like four times and I'm like, 
I think he might just be like way off on this one. There seem to be some steps missing in the logic at least. But again, gesturing towards the close relationship between figures of death and the Christmas tradition, Levi Strauss does make another interesting um, and rather familiar observation about Father Christmas, however, saying that he is not a mythic being, for there is no myth that accounts for his origins or his function, nor is he a legendary figure, as there is no semi-historical account attached to him. Which I guess, yeah, there we have to distinguish between Father Christmas and um, Santa Claus or St. Nicholas. Um, the Levi Strauss says, In fact, this supernatural and immutable being, eternally fixed in form and defined by an exclusive function and a periodic return, belongs more properly to the family of the gods, and that the only difference between Father Christmas and a true deity is that adults do not believe in him, although they encourage their children to do so and maintain this belief with a great number of tricks. So yeah, here we have a gesture both towards the, the idea of the Father Christmas figure as a god himself rather than um, you know, a, a subset of the Christian religion, uh, but also the identification of like lies to children, that that is how this tradition is maintained. Yes, it is very interesting to think about the Christmas tradition as the knowing and widespread preservation of a an acknowledged falseness it and I guess the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny that while these are characters and rituals ostensibly for children that it is the adults that are enforcing them and often maintaining or attempting to maintain their belief in them well after the children have outgrown it and of course one of the primary ways modern Christmas traditions have been communicated and codified uh, is through literature. So all of the academic analyses and histories of the Christmas tradition that I've consulted claim that the modern image of Santa Claus and the modern Christmas tradition are largely informed by the American author Clement Clark Moore's 1823 poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, or The Night Before Christmas, uh, which is directly parried in Hogfather when Death first appears dressed as the Hogfather, where it says, It was the night before Hog's Watch, and all through the house one creature stirred, and it was a mouse. But then it goes on to say that mice aren't good at passing on information because young mice aren't taken up into the famous trap sites and told stories about what, what happened there to warn them off which is to say that yeah the mice they don't have any stories they don't have any history they don't have any culture um, but specifically storytelling and language yeah although this seems like a bit of a you know quick snappy throwaway joke sort of thing it is gesturing towards the broader themes of the novel with the idea of the uh, humans being the, the rising ape and, and ascending uh, out of animality through narrative and, and cultural ritual so I think that was a um, nice little piece of foreshadowing there. A lot of the secondary sources I've been consulting about Christmas um, also often trace the popularization of the modern Santa Claus uh, to Moore's friend, the American author Washington Irving, uh, who is best known for his headless horseman story Sleepy Hollow, but who also characterizes St. Nicholas as a foundational spiritual and cultural legend in his early 19th century writing, particularly his satirical book A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty from 1809, uh, where he refers to St. Nicholas, or a uh, Father Christmas-like figure, on at least 25 separate occasions. And indeed, in the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Simpson directly credit Irving's story with transferring uh, St. Nicholas's supposed gift-giving visits from early December to the date of Christmas Eve. I didn't read that book because I'm not particularly interested in it, and it's sort of getting off track for our purposes here, but it is interesting, reading all this stuff, just how much, not only that the, the modern Christmas traditions owe to 
to America and the Americanization of these, uh, I guess, originally European and English figures and rituals, but also just how intrinsic Christmas as, as a concept and a practice uh, seems to be to American culture itself. Uh, but Pratchett is, of course, English, and from here out, I'll be largely focusing or, or exclusively even, I think, uh, focusing on um, English literature, beginning with our boy Shakespeare, uh, because in the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Simpson also point out how Shakespeare would often drag some fragments of myth and folklore together and weld them into something new in such a way that the end result suits our sense of narrative grammar. And then going on to argue that in a way both Santa and the Hogfather are communal Shakespearean creations. So here we have not only uh, Pratchett's parody version, the Hogfather, but um, Santa Claus himself being characterized as this pastiche, right? Um, which if you don't recall our discussion from the uh, which is a broad episode, this is the idea that as Pratchett and Simpson say of Shakespeare, the figure and the story of Father Christmas have been cobbled together from all these different traditions and incorporating these different aspects that each time there's new tradition rather than opposing it or, or letting it um, supersede the old traditions, that rather it is sort of broken down and reincorporated and made anew in the, in the modern traditions. Uh, but importantly for the, the pastiche angle, to the point that the new version replaces the old version, it doesn't exist separate to or in opposition to it. It's seen as a continuation or an equivalent, a replacement of uh, the original characters and traditions, which of course also um, echoes Krober's theory of, of stimulus diffusion that Levi Strauss was appealing to when discussing the cultural development of uh, the modern Christmas tradition. So Pratchett would certainly seem to agree there, right? We see that at the end of Hogfather with the um, the scene of the, the chase and the wild hunt, that the Hogfather is transforming and going through the, these different forms, right? But all these forms are the Hogfather. It's not that there was an old true Hogfather that's been replaced by an imitation Hogfather. It's that they are the same. The one has morphed into the other while still retaining its original significance. Uh, but in her 2019 book on the rise of children's fantasy literature in the 20th century, uh, which I talked a little bit about on the, the first Hogfather episode, uh, Maria Sachiko Ciceri, and again, I'm so sorry for how I pronounced their name there, but they also note that up until the end of the 19th century, Christmas also often served as a time for groups to imaginatively encounter dark forces by telling ghost stories, pointing out that the frame story for Henry James's extremely influential uh, gothic novella The Turn of the Screw from 1898 um, is that it is a story being told or being retold following it not being told. Uh, it's a bit of a weird uh, intro there but essentially the, the premise is that these are stories that the characters or the, the framing characters are telling um, around the fire at Christmas time. So this seems to be a, a fairly common sort of holiday tradition. So a notable example there that I guess uh, isn't really associated with Christmas or considered a, a Christmas story. So you can add that along with um, Die Hard and Gremlins that the uh, the turn of the screw is the best Christmas novel. Um, it, it's alright. I uh, read it fairly recently in preparation for this and um, I thought it was pretty good and it was written well and it was interesting enough but um, it kept reminding me of the uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror thing about uh, Ed Gell and Poe's The Raven where they, they recreate the Raven poem which, which I actually really like but they do the, the Raven that finishes and Bart says well I guess you know, people in the old days were just scared a lot easier back then or whatever. Um, I think we, we've come quite a long way since the, the turn of the screw but anyway not really relevant to Hogfather here except that it is a gothic Christmas story about a governess who is who is grappling with ideas of, of belief and things and is concerned about what her charges believe along with just the physical or I guess metaphysical threat the ghost she thinks she's seeing might pose to the children she's in charge of. She's also concerned with that if she starts talking about them then the children will start believing in ghosts and things like that. I don't think this was like a direct influence on uh, Pratchett and Hogfather at all. Um, I do just think this is sort of a coincidence a mishmash of just the gothic stylings and the, and the Victorian gothic 
specific starlings that he's sending up, right? There's not really a significance to the uh, governess other than these kinds of Victoria Ghost stories often centered around a governess, but it does sort of give us another ingredient into the mix there of the, again, this sort of pastiche of all these notable literary figures, uh, such as the, the character in The Turn of the Screw, I, I can't remember her name, and Mary Poppins, and all these different characters that, you know, get merged together into the character of Susan Stohallett in Hogfather and the broader Discworld. Although, of course, the most famous and influential Christmas ghost story is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol from about 60 years earlier other than The Turn of the Screw in 1843 is when that gets serialized and published. As we've been going, I've noted there is a Dickensian thread running through the death novels. It never devolves into pure parody, and I don't even know if they are um, a, a big enough part of, of the death novels to say that uh, they're an influence or, or a response to Dickens, um, that they're centered around Dickensian fiction. And of course, we get direct references to A Christmas Carol in Hogfather, uh, most notably when Arnold Sudways quotes Dickens's Tiny Tim in the final line says, God bless us, everyone. I do find it interesting that it's called A Christmas Carol, um, but it's not a musical, though I am getting constant emails uh, all this month telling me to, to go see the Christmas Carol musical that's closing this December or whatever. But as far as, as Dickens' original goes, yeah, I don't know why this isn't called A Christmas Tale or something like that. Although, as Macy notes, the combination of cheerfulness and piety in Christmas as much to the resurgence of the Christmas Carol after the middle of the 19th century. As he points out, um, there's also a, a sort of class aspect uh, to this as well, which perhaps ties in with the uh, Canton crew, the, the beggars in Hogfather, because Macy says that along with Father Christmas himself, carols had almost died out at the beginning of the 19th century and were only kept alive by the common people. So there's something interesting going on there in that as Christmas becomes a, a less institutionalized holiday, that it is taken up by the working class. I won't say bourgeoisie. Uh, I guess the implication is promoted by them for the, the benefits and comforts it brings to them, though it's also crucial here in relation to Hogfather that it is being spread through song, but through stories, right? Christmas carols are stories, so I guess that is where it ties into to the Dickens uh, title. Um, though I did find it very amusing that in um, Henry Mayhew's collection of essays on London labour and the poor uh, from the 1840s, which which I talked about in the, uh, the second soul music episode that I never ended up releasing, uh, but this is a book uh, consisting of interviews that uh, Mayhew did with, with a bunch of uh, you know, the, the working class and the lower classes in London in the 1840s that were very popular. And I, th I think it's in the, the Wilkins uh, biography that there is direct reference to Pratchett having read this and this being a foundational, inspirational work for him that suggests a lot of the characters in uh, Moorbrook are, are sort of based on some of the characters that appear in this book, uh, real-life characters, uh, which includes uh, in the essay on ancient and modern street ballad minstrelsy, which is to say street musicians. Uh, but that section of Mayhew's essays records an interview uh, with a street caroler who is given one shilling to sing uh, Christmas carols, but before finishing the chorus is sent from the house with another shilling to go away again. Um, which, that, that feels like a very Pratchett thing. Um, I don't know if I'm imagining uh, Fallowed Ron and, and everyone doing that in Hogfather, if there is a parody of that particular scene, or I'm just making it up in, in retrospect because it sounds Pratchettian. Um, uh, this also brings up a point that in the, the first Hogfather episode, I said, you know, the thing I don't like about this book is that, that I hate Christmas. I guess I'm a, a bit of a Scrooge. But one of, maybe the thing I dislike the most about Christmas uh, are Christmas carols. I can't stand Christmas carols. Like, I think they are the absolute lowest form of music. I, I just can't, I can't deal with them. And it's, when Nadav pushed me for, for what I don't like about Christmas, I didn't really have my, my thoughts together. But like, what I really don't like about Christmas is the, is the forced fun, the forced joviality, or the, the gestures that everyone has to act happy, but often there's not really your actual reason
reasons or actions to bring about uh, the, the kinds of feelings and, and attitudes that their traditions and carols in particular are talking about. And I just, they're, they're just awful. I hate Christmas carols. They play them in the shops. I don't like them. Uh, but yes, the, the rise of the modern Christmas tradition and its, its prominence in um, contemporary um, Anglo-American cultures today does largely cement itself in the mid to late 19th century. Um, and it's often credited to, to Dickens to being a, a major popularizer of this. Like in, in addition to A Christmas Carol, he wrote multiple Christmas books that were published every year at Christmas. I did um, attempt to read a few more of these and they weren't nearly as, as good or fun. Um, there were no uh, spooky ghosts and things. They were just sort of boring domestic dramas. Uh, so, I, so I gave up and they also, they're not particularly influential or influential at all and also didn't seem to have much bearing on, on Pratchett and things. Yeah, yeah, for all his historical prominence, uh, Macy argues that the enthusiasm of Dickens for the festival was not the case of its revival, but rather the result. He refers to a survey of the Times newspaper. Uh, this is the round world one, not the uh, more walking one that we'll get to in six years. But yes, he looks at a survey of Times newspapers uh, circulated in London between 1790 and 1836 and notes that Christmas is not even mentioned in the paper at all for 20 years and that there are only brief reports for the remaining years. So that really does go to show that although the Christmas feels all-encompassing and inescapable and Pratchett in Hogfather and, and in the Yes, There Is a Santa Claus editorial that, that he is uh, parodying in Death's Final Speech, that all this proclamation about how central and, and foundational Christmas is to human culture, you know, maybe this wasn't always the case, or this wasn't always the case, right? Human culture did exist before Christmas, even in, in England, although I'm sure there were other cultures and rituals in their place, and perhaps Pratchett and um, I think it was Francis Church uh, who wrote that editorial would argue that yes, but this was a lesser existence for the, the lack of Christmas celebration. But yes, interesting to see that even not that long ago, Christmas maybe wasn't that big a deal and has become so in the time between Dickens and Pratchett. And it is interesting just how prevalent a Christmas carol has been. I mean, Dickens is obviously one of the most uh, popular and influential and, and somehow bafflingly still incredibly popular authors in the history of English literature. And I mentioned on one of the previous episodes, maybe it was the Mort ones or something, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that his most endearing works, the ones that are still widely read and, and analyzed today, are the more fantastic leaning ones, for as much respect as there is for things like Bleak House and David Copperfield, or Tale of Two Cities, let alone something like Hard Times or whatever. Like these are all titles people know, though I would wager not many have actually read um, outside of academia and certainly haven't been read as much as things like Oliver Twist, uh, which is, you know, not fantastic, but sort of this underground thieving adventure romp and Great Expectations, which is like this gothic novel, really. And then, of course, uh, A Christmas Carol, which is a time-traveling ghost story. And of course, these three, which I would wager are the, the three most popular uh, Charles Dickens works, are popular because they've been adapted to first stage and then films. Like, that's how things become more accessible and end up having a, a broader cultural impact. But I would wager that the reason those ones have been so successfully and so prominently adapted is because of the the sort of adventurous, often fantastical uh, aspect of their, their imagery and action. Which is to say that, yes, while I attempted to read uh, some of Dickens's later uh, Christmas stories, I, I gave up pretty quickly because they, they were just so bland. But I did reread uh, A Christmas Carol, which I've, I've read a couple of times, and i got to say, A Christmas Carol slaps, right? <laughs> and the reason it slaps so hard is, is because of the ghosts. 
Um, the ghosts are cool as shit, but I don't think this has much to do with, with Hogfather, which, despite all its gothicness, doesn't bring in the, the ghost, or even much of the, the time side of things, given that there was, um, you know, time was pretty essential to uh, soul music, with moving uh, back and forth, Susan and, and patching time and things, and will, of course, become central in Thief of Time, so it's interesting that uh, we don't get any sort of future present stuff going on in Hogfather, given its other allusions to A Christmas Carol. Although, uh, Nadav did point out to me uh, while we were recording the first episode that there are three auditors, right? The number of auditors that, that show up to employ Tiaspe in uh, at the start of Hogfather, there are three of them. And, I mean, there are technically more because some of them gain an identity and pop out of existence and are replaced, so I don't know if we're counting them as, as one, or even if we should uh, count auditors at all, given that they're, they're not individuals, allegedly. But, um, yeah, I don't know if there's if that's deliberate or there's any significance to that illusion, but yes, there are three ghosts in Dickens um, and three ghost-like auditors in Hogfather. Uh, so I want to take a, a second to just talk about the, the three ghosts in A Christmas Carol. I don't know if there's too much to be gleaned from this, other than just it's, it's a bit of fun. But yes, going in order, we begin with the ghost of Christmas Past, who in the stage and film adaptations is usually played by a woman or a child in, in sort of like an angelic white robe or something. But I, but I always forget, going back to A Christmas Carol, and th- this might be a bit of a doki-doki fact about A Christmas Carol, but yeah, the, the ghost of Christmas Past um, in Dickens' story is an absolute like multi-dimensional Lovecraftian horror. <laughs> so I, I do want to read the entire description of um, the Ghost of Christmas Past for people who, yeah, if you're not um, familiar with the Christmas Carol or are only familiar with it through its adaptations and haven't actually read the original, like this is why it is it is often very interesting to go back and read uh, the original versions of these texts that have been um, adapted and are so prevalent. Because yes, in the original text, the Ghost of Christmas Past is indeed described as looking like a child, but also looking yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright clear jet of light by which all this was visible. Even this though was not its strangest quality for the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. So extremely Lovecraftian there, I think. So it's a bit shocking to to get to that passage in the, in the middle of a Dickens story. But despite its focus on the past and the origins of the, the Hog's Watch tradition, I do think the uh, Ghost of Christmas Past, uh, despite its awesomeness, is perhaps the ghost that has the least to do with what's going on in Hogfather. But in the folklore of Discord, Pratchett and Simpson refer to Dickens' Ghost of Christmas Present as like just a, a giant Santa Claus as the finest account of a personified Christmas spirit who embodies the joys of food and drink. is described as a jolly giant sitting upon a throne of turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, and long wreaths of sausages and other Christmas foods. So I do find it interesting here that, yes, perhaps along with just the gesture towards gluttonous Christmas dinners, that this is perhaps also, you know, a, a gesture towards the, the figure's origins um, as, as a hunting um, spirit and such. But even more significant in relation to Hogfather uh, is, of course, the ghost of Christmas future, who is is just death, right? It's just the Grim Reaper who shows up and points around all spookily and, and and shows Scrooge his own death. We don't even have to wait until something like um, A Nightmare Before Christmas to get a, a skeleton playing, if, if not Santa Claus, then Christmas itself, right? This is saying death is Christmas. 
Um, time is Christmas, of course, all those traditions, but they are alluded to through A Christmas Carol, which is like way more popular and influential than Hogfather. So you don't actually have to look too far for these the kind of inversions that Pratchett's doing. You do have to look a, a bit closely, though they're not that not that much closer at A Christmas Carol and have a think about what's going on there. Because as Macy observes, that what we have uh, with the Ghost of Christmas Future is the spirit of Father Christmas using a variant of the Memento Mori um, message of his brother, Father Time. So to bring that all together, or attempt to bring that all together, I was going to say that the, the Hog Father just being the Father Christmas Santa Claus figure as the Ghost of Christmas Present, and that then Death is playing the Ghost of Christmas Past and Christmas Future. Link is fairly obvious, along with being the Grim Reaper. Death is also showing Susan and the Wizards, or telling them that, you know, he's not showing them their deaths, he's showing them the death of Christmas, which is the death of culture, the death of the sun. I was going to say he is also the Ghost of Christmas Past, because he, he shows the, the origins of the tradition and things. Clearly he's the Ghost of Christmas Future, but he is more the Ghost of Christmas Present than the Ghost of Christmas Past, right? in dressing up as the Hogfather and trying to remind everyone of the joviality jo- and, and the values of the um, traditions and things, like he, he sort of plays that role, uh, while the Hogfather himself is in absentia, but perhaps the Hogfather plays more of a, a Ghost of Christmas Past role, in that Death is telling everyone about the, the origins of the history of Hog's Watch, but the Hogfather in this story is, is embodying them, and like I read that passage about um, the Ghost of Christmas Past having 10 and 20 and one legs all at once with and looks like a small man that's become a small child just because I thought it was weird and cool. But there's a way of reading that where it's it's the pastiche thing again, where Christmas is all these things at once and that the Hogfather's forms sort of fluctuate to show all these things during the wild hunt at the end. So I thought I was just having a bit of fun there and gothing out, but I, I may have brought that all around to some semblance of a thought, I think. Um, anyway, whether I have or not, uh, that is a look at the foundations and popularization of uh, the modern Christmas tradition. So now for the the final section of this episode, I want to turn to the foundations and history of the modern fantasy tradition. So I talked a bit last episode about Tolkien's poem Mythopoeia and how that ties into some of the ideas about belief that Pratchett seems to be preaching in Hogfather. But here I want to look at a more direct relationship between Tolkien's writing and um, the specifically Christmas tradition. So each year at Christmas from 1920 to 1943, Tolkien wrote his children letters in the in the character of Father Christmas, um, which were first published posthumously as the Father Christmas Letters in 1976. This Tolkien family tradition, and I realise I'm saying tradition far too much uh, this episode for a word, but I guess that's what uh, it's about. Uh, But this tradition began when Tolkien's oldest son, John Francis, was three, and continued until his youngest daughter Priscilla was 14, uh, when she, like her brothers before her, became too old to hang up her stocking. And and I did discover um, when I was looking her up that she actually died at the the start of this year. But as to the Father Christmas letters themselves, the first letter of 1920 uh, is fairly simple, and contains a drawing of Father Christmas's house, which I was hoping uh, would be the the classic children's house with the um, you know the the door and the square windows with the, with the blue sky over the top and everything. Um, but it's a rather detailed um, sort of igloo-like house. Yes, though they start out fairly simple, these letters quickly become more narratively and character-driven and start incorporating elements of a specifically Tolkien-esque uh, fantasy. So that uh, by the 1932 letter, which was sent after Tolkien had finished 
the first draft of The Hobbit and had sent a copy to C.S. Lewis, who we'll discuss in a bit. This letter now includes goblin pictograms, goblin alphabet and symbols and things. Uh, by 1937, uh, when The Hobbit was first published, the Father Christmas narrative has evolved to include a secretary elf named Ilbereth, who writes in runic, and who later plays an important part in the defense of Father Christmas's house against encroaching attacks by goblins. Um, but there is a, a more direct and intimate connection between the Tolkien letters and The Hobbit than just, you know, mere coincidence that that's what um, he's doing at the time, because Tolkien primarily wrote The Hobbit uh, during his Christmas holidays while he was also working on the Christmas letters at Oxford, as he would again with Lord of the Rings. And indeed, an early draft of The Hobbit contains two mentions of Christmas. The dwarves, Philly and Killy, are described as climbing right up a cinder larch like a tall, thin Christmas tree to escape from a pack of wolves. And Elrond, the half-elf Lord of Rivendell, is introduced as being as kind as Christmas, uh, which was later changed to kind as summer, uh, which I thought was interesting given the connections in Hogfather uh, between Christmas and the change of seasons and the sun coming up. So, you know, if you look at this through through a Pratchett lens or a Pratchett keyhole, you can sort of see that saying someone is as kind as Christmas is somewhat the same saying they are as kind as summer. Um, Chris Swank's 2013 examination of The Hobbit and the Father Christmas Letters also draws parallels with the uh, Father Christmas Letters charismatic North Polar Bear, who helps fight off an invading goblin army, and the Werebear Bjorn in The Hobbit. Um, Swank also notes that Tolkien's Father Christmas character also shares a number of remarkable similarities uh, with the wizard Gandalf, seeing as they are both little old men with tall pointed hats, long cloaks, white beards, bushy eyebrows, and immense black boots, who also impress their charges with fireworks displays. Uh, which I find those comparisons somewhat incidental and just archetypal of just sort of general old sage wise um, men archetypes. Um, except that Swank also points out uh, that in one of Tolkien's early drawings, titled Riding Down to Rivendell, available in uh, the 2012 Art of the Hobbit look, rather than his a trademark ray, Gandalf's cloak is in fact coloured red, just like Father Christmas's is in the uh, Father Christmas letters, so that I think, suggests a more direct and deliberate lineage on uh, Tolkien's part between Father Christmas and Gandalf. And um, as John D. Radeliff notes in his 2007 History of the Hobbit, the characters of uh, the dragon Smaug and uh, the character Gollum from the Hobbit also appear hidden uh, in the enclosed Father Christmas illustrations. So while, you know, Tolkien is just putting these in as, as fun little references and jokes for his kids, there does seem to be a, a fairly intimate connection between the ideas he was presenting in uh, the Father Christmas letters and uh, the Hobbit itself. So this is all to say that rather than just being a metaphor for storytelling and imagination, as uh, Pratchett is suggesting in, in Hogfather, Christmas traditions are in fact foundational to the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and, and therefore to modern uh, post-Tolkien fantasy itself. And there begins to be a bit of a, a meta exchange between uh, Tolkien as Father Christmas and, and his children following the Hobbit's publication, because uh, prior to receiving the 1937 letter, Tolkien's son and later editor Christopher Tolkien um, had written to Father Christmas, um, asking him if he knew of the Hobbit, and proposing it to him as a, a good idea for Christmas presents that year. And in response, Tolkien's Father Christmas says that he's already been giving away loads of copies of the Hobbit this Christmas, um, but he won't be bringing them one since he thought they would already have lots of copies, um, but has instead gifted them another Oxford fairy story. And, and I've done a little bit of, of looking into this. I have no idea what this other Oxford fairy story is. It's too early to be uh, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, which Tolkien didn't uh, particularly care for anyway, and I don't, I don't know what else would be identified as, as a specifically Oxford um, fairy story. Maybe another of Lewis's works, but prior to that I think he'd only written his more uh, adult-oriented series and novels, so I, I'm not sure what that is. If anyone knows, uh, please please do 
let me know, but perhaps more interesting in connection to Hogfather is that in the anti-penultimate letter of 1941, uh, Tolkien's father Christmas remarks that the number of children who keep up with him seems to be getting smaller, uh, which he expects is because of this horrible war, uh, being of course World War II, which they're in the middle of at that point, um, although he expects that when it is over things will improve again. And then again in the, the final letter of 1943, which is addressed solely to Priscilla, Tolkien's father Christmas instructs her not to be miserable despite the war, since he is still very much alive and shall come back again soon, as merry as ever. So even in, in Tolkien's conception of the character here that he's just playing for his family, there is some connection between the state of the world and belief in, in Santa Claus and, and the fantastic, um, that belief in Christmas and fantasy is inversely proportionate to the progress of World War II. So yeah, some, some very interesting uh, connections and I think pretty significant implications there, but they're, they're all kind of inferred uh, regarding Tolkien. Now, of course, uh, Father Christmas plays a much more obvious and significant role in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, wherein, much to the chagrin of myself and many others, uh, he shows up halfway through the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and gives the children a bunch of presents, um, including a sword for Peter, which is parried in Hogfather during the um, Miracle on 34th Street department store, department store parody scene. Like, yes, it's played for laughs in Hogfather, the, the idea of Father Christmas giving a child a sword, um, but of course that is exactly what, what happens as a, a sort of rite of passage, and I'm trying to think what the hero's journey term for this would be, like this is the, the mentor showing up giving the trinkets. But yes, I, I talked a little bit about, there seems to be a, a thread of Pratchett sort of responding to Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia throughout the Death series, uh, talking about it in, in soul music and the character of, of Susan dealing with her parents' death and things. Um, and there is there is some deliberateness to the uh, parody of, of Father Christmas gifting the sword suggested in Hogfather by the Tooth Fairy Violet's later remark that uh, there are magic wardrobes that lead to magic lands, along with um, uh, Susan's comment about worlds full of goblins and talking animals in soul music, which suggests some kind of pointed um, engagement with Lewis's Narnia in the Death series, rather than just the generic references to, to magic wardrobes and fantasy in general that are thrown out in uh, sorcery. Uh, but despite the figure of Santa Claus being seemingly foundational to imagination and, and modern fantasy and things, the inclusion of Father Christmas in Chronicles of Narnia was and still is a fairly controversial, and uh, one person who was particularly offended by Father Christmas's inclusion was Tolkien himself, who despite his own gestures towards Christmas in The Hobbit and, and his other works, um, treated the sudden appearance of Santa Claus in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as evidence that Lewis was not taking the business of sub-creation with proper seriousness, since the story borrowed so indiscriminately from other mythologies and narratives, thus preventing the suspension of disbelief needed for entering into a secondary world. Yes, I, I think given that, he wouldn't be too impressed with uh, Discworld. And this is sort of paraphrased, I think, it's, it's from Henry Carpenter's biography of the Inklings, which is the Oxford group that uh, Tolkien and Lewis were a part of, where this um, interpretation is, is commonly cited. I don't know if there is a hard you know, primary primary source from Tolkien saying this in, in a letter or something, but to paraphrase this paraphrase, this is Tolkien saying that gesturing towards these ideas of Christmas is fine, but when you're bringing in the, the tradition of Christmas itself into this supposedly parallel fantasy world, then that, that breaks the, the immersion. Um, so in some sense, like, by rebranding Christmas as Hogswatch and, and the Hogfather, Pratchett is doing a, a more uh, seamless act of sub-creation than Lewis, who just straight up puts Father Christmas in there. Um, but there have been some fairly impassioned defences of Father Christmas's inclusion in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. In his 2010 book, The Narnia Code, uh, Michael Ward argues that each of the Narnia books is representative of some of the, the planets in the solar system, and that Father Christmas in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is jovial, and therefore 
he is Jovian in the sense of Jupiter. If you want to go that, down that line of, of thinking, then that identification is interesting in that it maybe makes more sense from Pratchett's perspective to identify Father Christmas with Saturn in that he is derived from the Saturnalia. But then you run into the idea that by identifying him with Jupiter, there's a bit of a contradiction there because Jupiter being the, the Roman name for Zeus, and it's Zeus who actually... Uh, kills uh, Saturn or Kronos and, and overthrows him and supplants him. So in some ways, maybe that works better because it is the um, killing off and supplanting of the, the old traditions that people have perhaps forgotten by the, the new jovial uh, figure of Father Christmas. But all of that is is a bit um, speculative and it, it word association. I mean, there's something to it in that uh, Lewis you know, was engaging with some of these ideas about the symbolism of planetary bodies and things in his earlier um, space trilogy. But again, the, the evidence for it for it is pretty pretty thin and, and I don't find it particularly convincing myself. Um, although a more thorough and convincing investigation um, is conducted by uh, Nancy Lou Patterson in her 1991 article about symbols of time in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, wherein she points out that uh, Narnia is introduced in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the midst of an eternal winter, having been cursed by the White Witch to be always winter and never Christmas. And uh, Patterson points out that there's, there's a bit of clever wordplay going on here and that always implies never that these words um, seem opposite, but are actually called equated, something to think about, perhaps going into uh, Thief of Time, the way that something being eternal also means that um, it never progresses, it never changes. Uh, but more specifically, in the, in the context of Narnia and in relation to Hogfather, Narnia being always winter and never Christmas means that there, there is no change of seasons, uh, which is to say that the sun won't come up uh, while there there is never Christmas. So in Hogfather, we, we kind of have death uh, trying to prevent a, a Narnia situation. And Patterson connects this to uh, the idea of anamnesis, which means remembering, which in some branches of Christian theology is connected with um, Jesus and, and the Eucharist, uh, but also in Platonic philosophy is the act of recalling all the innate knowledge that Plato says um, we lose through the, the trauma of birth, that you know, in, the, in the spirit world we have perfect knowledge of, of all the perfect forms of things, and then when we're brought into the real world we, we forget everything but are still able to remember it or, or recognize uh, the imperfect representations of, of the forms in the real world and then that prompts the anamnesis to recall uh, the, the lost knowledge which I doubt this is something Pratchett was talking about especially since I am talking about Lewis here but this does connect to I mean we talked about uh, to the ideas of Plato's forms that were being brought up in relation to the way uh, Susan and, and Tea Time see the world in Hogfather and, and also this idea of, of cultural pastiche and things where Father Christmas himself is an imperfect representation of these allegedly more pure um, historical tradition did uh, also find it interesting that uh, like the Verukanome and the other new gods that are appearing in Hogfather um, that the coming of the White Witch in the Lion, the Witch, and the, 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 Witch and the Wardrobe uh, is announced by the distant sounds of sleigh bells and that she then appears like Santa in a sledge drawn by two reindeer uh, which in Lewis's case is a reference to the fairy tale of the, the Snow Queen which I don't think is, is worth going into in relation to Hogfather and things uh, but yes it is the, the intention of the White Witch in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to prevent the sun from coming other seasons from changing, um, which Patterson says is most poignantly expressed when she turns to stone the charming little party of Narnians who have begun to celebrate Christmas with an outdoor feast. That these characters, the way she stops Christmas from coming is by freezing the Narnians in time as much as in place. Although notably, she turns them to stone, given she is the, you know, white witch of, of winter. 
why is it why is she freezing people why isn't she turning them into ice this is another part that I, for me at least sort of points to some of the the sloppiness of um the Narnian novels um, but as Patterson explains the freeing of the frozen Narnians by Aslan therefore indicates the restoration of time and the flow of the seasons and she also then connects this to Christmas by saying that it is symbolized by the birthing of Jesus as represented by Aslan um, I'm not convinced by that because it's the crucifixion of Jesus that is reenacted by Aslan in the line the witch in the wardrobe rather than his birth or, or resurrection even so I'm not sure about that yeah, but this all for me sort of prompts the question that is Hogfather simply a more successful version of Narnia like I, I think it's a far better and much deeper and, and provocative book than uh, the line the witch in the wardrobe but at the end of the day it does seem to be reinforcing a lot of the traditional Christian ideas that have been embedded by Tolkien and Lewis and, and carried throughout the modern fantasy tradition that they inspired. So in the series 2019 book on the, on the rise of children's fantasy literature in the 20th century, uh, which I referenced a few times in these episodes now, uh, she observes how children's fantasy texts repeatedly assert that children and youth have special access to enchantment and, as an extension of this, an essential role to play in repairing and maintaining the moral balance of the disenchanted world that adults inhabit. And she traces this trend to what she calls the Oxford School tradition of modern fantasy, which has its roots in Tolkien and Lewis, who uh, developed a literary curriculum of medieval fantasy texts for the University of Oxford, uh, which was taught there from 1931 to 1970 and produced some notable fantasy authors uh, such as Susan Cooper, Diana Wayne-Jones, Kevin Crossley-Holland and Philip Holman, whose works all revolve around retellings of Christian and Arthurian legends. I think less so Diana Wayne-Jones, who, who does have the uh, Merlin conspiracy series, so obviously we have Merlin referring to the Arthurian legend there, though I think she is um, better known for, at least these days, for things like um, the Howl's Moving Castle series, uh, which in the sequels at least take more directly from uh, The Thousand and One Nights and that sort of uh, orientalist fantasy tradition, though the others, uh, you know, Pullman and Cooper's books, are direct retellings of uh, Christian mythology, whereas uh, Kevin Crossley Holland, who I'm not too familiar with, but I am told is known for his retelling of the Arthurian legends. So, um, and the course included the well-known 14th century poem uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, which takes place at Christmas and which Tolkien later produced a popular translation of author stuff. And indeed, Ciceri notes how Christmas plays a, a central role in several Oxford school stories, um, as well as those of subsequent children's fantasy works. I think most notably among those Oxford authors that she lists is Cooper's novel The Dark is Rising, which is the titular second novel of her Dark is Rising sequence, which is a, a heavily Christianized retelling of the uh, Arthurian legends that being set at Christmas. Um, I do find it interesting that in this this chapter of the series that there is no mention of Hogfather or Pratchett, despite him, let's say, comfortably outselling all of these authors, and, and I would say having far more cultural presence than at least Cooper and Crossley Holland, and, and I'd say arguably Jones and Pullman as well, even if, if Pullman uh, these days perhaps has more academic and film and television exposure. I don't know necessarily how influential uh, the Pullman texts have been, and while Jones is, is fairly influential in her anticipation of, of a lot of things that are in um, Harry Potter in the Cresta Banshee series and uh, House Moving Castle and things. Um, again, I think just the prominence on Pratchett in terms of, of sales and, and popular recognition probably far outweighs her influence if you add it all up. I mean, I know he is not an Oxford author, but I think given that he is a, an extremely prominent uh, English fantasy writer with Hogfather having a popular uh, TV adaptation as well, I think it's probably worth a mention there. But either way, Ciceri contends that the prominence of uh, Christmas in 
in fantasy literature is unsurprising, uh, since Christmas offers a natural connection between reality and fantasy, arguing that placing an ancient pre-commercial Santa at the centre of the holiday is what makes it possible for Christmas to read as a magical break from the rationalism, cynicism, and workday economy of the rest of the year in spite of its deep relationship to the market, and that this is why it is so important that Santa be more than a symbol, an active belief that children hold, and that to this end, Christmas is perhaps one of the most striking instances of widespread cultural agreement that fiction is a source of essential truth in contemporary life. Again, I think probably a, a reference to Hogfather might have been uh, worthwhile there, uh, but, but despite this sort of romantic um, association of Christmas with truth and, and childhood innocence and the power of imagination and things, as Cecilia also points out, um, the maintenance of a childish belief in pre-modern enchantment at Christmas time is also key uh, to the functioning of modern adult commerce throughout the rest of the year, and that Christmas therefore demonstrates just how profoundly popular understandings of the mythical, magical past can affect the practical realities of contemporary life. Uh, this is fantasy dictating behaviour in the real world, and, and she includes therefore that such ideas about the past therefore do not necessarily need to be true, just widely shared. And I think there's something to this, and maybe this is where some of my um, cynicism around Christmas creeps in, is that I don't see Christmas so much as this representation of some deeper truth that by embracing the, the Christmas spirit or whatever, um, I or others um, will necessarily be brought in contact with this uh, more truthful or enlightened way of being, so much as it seems like this strange, almost kind of cultish set of rituals that are perpetuated for the sake of perpetuating them. Um, and in this sense, that's where it becomes this sort of nefarious postmodern simulacra to me, in that there there is a simulation of Christmas cheer and Christmas spirit. We are told over and over again that um, Christmas represents all these things but the de demonstrable material effect it has on the world is especially these days the, the commercial one uh, which as Siri points out isn't just at Christmas that it's about gift giving and things but that it dictates um, commerce throughout the, the rest of the year the way businesses um, and things operate um, but also and, and I don't think I'd go as far as Nadav did in the, in the first episode to call the perpetuation of uh, Christmas belief among children as traumatic um, but like it, it is culturally accepted brainwashing. Like when you when you sort of get down to it. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that, that you know it's bad or that people's lives aren't enriched by believing in these things or, or engaging in these rituals. But like the the whole Santa Claus thing, it's not like a fun game parents play with their children. Like it's not, or ideally, it's not done with like a knowing wink and a nod. Um, like the the idea is to get children to to believe in these things, right? Not to play a game with. Them. Them, but to convince them that, that it's real, right? And you can debate, you know, how much actually children buy into that um, sort of thing, but that is the the idealization about it. Um, anyway, and, and look, perhaps I'm being too cynical about the whole thing, but I do think the constant perpetuation of the, the idea of Christmas being about uh, truth and, and justice and uh, charity and, and things um, is at least in, in the modern age and in the uh, westernized capitalist society that I live in and, and have grown up in. Um, fuck closer to propaganda than some kind of enlightening uh, cultural ritual. Uh, but to go back to uh, fantasy literature for a second, um, Ciceri concludes, therefore, that just as Christmas has been built from reimagined elements of old celebrations, uh, so too has Oxford School fantasy recast medieval literature and legend in the light of modern childhood. And I would argue, therefore,
before and perhaps far more uh, extremely and directly that you have death monologuing to camera at the end, like making the message of the book, the intended message, very clear in Hogfather that what is being presented under the guise of a subversive postmodern parody of, of this farcical um, idea of, of what the angel of death dressed up as Santa Claus actually turns out to be a fairly conservative pastiche, especially as you know I've pointed out that the parodic ideas that of the skeleton in the Father Christmas um, outfit, if not directly borrowed, then echoes A Nightmare Before Christmas. So you have Pratchett presenting a Disneyfied version of Christmas, and and he then has his mouthpiece in this story, Death, um, stare into the camera and recite the values presented in um, presented by Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. And given that, in light of her her readings of um, these authors, Cecilia contends that the six authors of the Oxford School that she examines, um, she says that their attitudes towards composition therefore emphasize continuity as much as, if not more than, innovation. Which leads me to uh, conclude this second part on on Hogfather. Um, I think quite unexpectedly for for me, if not for uh, you as the listener, but I I didn't think this is where I'd end up. But all this has sort of led me to propose that rather than being this bold, enlightened, postmodern subversion of of the fantasy and Christmas traditions, is Hogfather in fact the most regressive and and conservative of um, Discworld books? And that's not to say conservative in in a political sense, but conservative in the sense of preserving traditions uh, rather than reinterpreting or creating new ones. Like, even if if death in in Hogfather is ostensibly saying, you know, look beyond Santa Claus to the deeper traditions beneath, the values that are actually being expressed in Hogfather and that I think are are being communicated through the book are the the same ones that are being expressed through uh, films like A A Miracle on 34th Street and uh, Disney films like A Nightmare Before Christmas, along with and by the largely conservative Christian authors in Tolkien and Lewis who who founded the modern um, fantasy tradition that Discworld is presented and at least initially intended as a um, subversive alternative to. Even though, as we know, Pratchett loved Tolkien and I, and I don't think you know he necessarily has to uh, disagree with him or throw everything away there. Um, yes, I am at least I'm left at the end of this investigation. I'm still thinking Hogfather is a, a really great book and definitely one of the um, strongest of the Discworld series, um, if just for its plotting and writing. It is a deep engagement that is presenting deep ideas. It's just that those uh, ideas aren't necessarily original uh, or subversive or alternative in any uh, significant way, I don't think. You eat those pigs and turkeys because they taste so That is it for all the Christmas stuff. Uh, but there were a few things that didn't seem to fit anywhere that I did want to uh, tack on here at the end. We haven't done a proper Miskworld section for a while, uh, but here we go. Uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up was the wizard shower story, uh, which which I just, I don't get. Like it, like it is there as comic relief amidst all this seriousness. Like I understand textually why it's in the book. And, and I do find, like, like I wasn't a big fan of the wizard 
weird side plot um, in Reaper Man. I, I do find this one quite entertaining and amusing, along with all the other things that are going on with the wizards. Um, in particular, I actually find uh, the scenes with the the cheerful fairy um, to be some of the funniest um, in the in the book. But I don't understand the thematic connection, if there's any at all, to do with with the shower and the, the bloody stupid Johnson bathroom and things like that. Like, if anything, if I'm just doing like a quick sort of ridiculous surface level read, it, it seems to say that you know the past should not be uncovered, that things should be left lie and <laughs> don't go seeking forbidden knowledge or something like that, uh, which is ridiculous. Like, I don't think that's what it is, but I don't see any other way to tie it into what's going on with Hogfather. So I'm a bit stumped by that. Uh, in the Wilkins biography, there is a story about how, uh, during his doctoral ceremony at Trinity College, uh, Pratchett encountered the provost's truly sensational downstairs lavatory, a massive lump of Victorian porcelain with a vast wooden seat, known as the Deluge, on account of the torrential force of its flush, with college dean David Lloyd telling him, you've got to hang on the chain a while to get it going properly, uh, which seems like the perfect source for this slapstick side plot, except that this happened in 2008, so 12 years after Hogfather's publication, so I don't know what's going on here, unless it's just like a general thing about uh, British universities, that they have these old bathrooms, and this was just like an idea Pratchett had, and he wanted to stick it in a, in a book somewhere, but I don't know what's going on with the wizards and the bathroom. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, or that, that I skipped over in the first episode uh, during our discussion of uh, Ian Stewart and Jack Cohen's Collapse of Chaos book, uh, which is the one where they're first developing the idea of lies to children. That book actually begins with an epigraph from the first part of William Wordsworth's unfinished 1888 poem, The Recluse, uh, which reads, How exquisitely the individual mind to the external world is fitted, and how exquisitely too the external world is fitted to the mind, and the creation by no lower name can it be called, which they with blended might accomplish. Uh, so a bit of falling angel meets the rising ape imagery there. But I also thought it was interesting, given my discussion of Susan and Wordsworth's poetry uh, in the last Soul Music episode. So again, I think these things are incidental, but there is some kind of parallel development of thought there, or perhaps even a conscious one, given Stuart and Cohen's influence on Pratchett. But as much as I think I, I was over-reading and disappearing up my own butt a bit uh, with the Wordsworth quantum literature stuff in the Soul Music episode, here we have two scientists, mathematicians, appealing to Wordsworth as a way to unlock the truth of the world uh, in a book that is then connected through their reading of Hogfather, uh, which is about all these ideas about how the imagination will uncover truth and all of that, which proceeds from Soul Music, where Pratchett was very clearly sculpting Hogfather in the back of his head as he was putting it together. So perhaps not as incidental and off the mark as I thought, although they're still extremely implicit. Um, and finally, I'm not actually sure uh, how relevant, if at all, this is to Hogfather, but in light of uh, Hex, who first appears in Soul Music and then plays a, a more significant role here, where we have the ultimate logic machine buying into uh, the idea of fictional truth and, and the magical interpretation of the world, I wanted to finish on the following passage from Pratchett's article uh, 2001, The Vision and the Reality, uh, which was published on the 24th of December, so Christmas Eve of the year 2000, and compares technology at the turn of the millennium uh, with that envisioned in Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is of course a film and a book about apes being inspired to higher consciousness through eating meat, uh, which is heavily influenced, explicitly so, uh, by Robert Ardrey's book, which as I mentioned in the previous episode, contains a passage 
about falling angels meeting rising apes, um, and which you can read more about in my forthcoming book, Vegetarianism and Science Fiction, which I really hope I can get done um, next month and have out later in the year. But in that article, Pratchett writes, What we are, in fact, are electronic ape men. We woke up just now in the electronic dawn, and there, looming against the brightening sky, is this huge black rectangle. And we're reaching out and touching it and saying, Is it WAP WAP enabled? And can we have sex with it? Which I think takes on quite a different and more direct meaning 20 years later in 2002. Uh, So I will leave it there. Thank you very much once again to everyone who has listened to this podcast and especially those uh, long-time listeners who have put up with me this year. I want to take a moment now um, again to thank everyone who has signed up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash Unseen Academicals. So yes, extra special thanks to uh, Jess, Dan, Gabriel, Other Dan, Jason, Adele, BJ, and Liz. I'm very happy with how quickly and easily these Hogfather episodes seem to come together, and so you know, hopefully the content hasn't uh, suffered for their timeliness. Um, and we'll do my best to get the Thief of Time episode or episodes out as soon as I can. Hoping Eden might be able to come back on for one of those. I'm not really sure of the angle. I want to take on it yet but we can always just talk about how great it is for an hour or so my book is due now at the end of february and it's coming together okay but i really need to get it done and just move on with my life so i may end up needing to take a a bit of a break from this over january uh if that is the case then i will do the thing i said i was going to do with uh these episodes which is that i will endeavor to put out the bonus vegetarian vampire episodes yes i'll be back when i can uh with the new episodes and Thanks again uh, to all the patrons for their support and to everyone for listening. Um, happy Hogs Watch, enjoy the holidays, and I will be back at some point early next year to talk about Thief of Time. Bye! And we're clear. But why? I did it to preserve the meaning of Christmas, and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids! Hail Santa! Hail Santa! Shut up!